Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1055. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've made it just about halfway through Jesus' final series of sermons known as the Olivet Discourse. And we'll begin reading in verse 45 this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, a tale of two servants. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll begin reading in verse 45. And this is what the Word of God says. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the end of Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, And at the end of his last sermon here in the Olivet Discourse, at the end of Matthew 24, Jesus contrasts the wise and the foolish. And in these verses that we've just read, Jesus tells the parable of two servants who worked for an absentee master. One servant, he says, was faithful and wise, while the other servant was faithless and wicked. The wise servant in this parable represents believers, and the wicked servant represents unbelievers. And through this tale of two servants, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that his return will reveal the true character of everyone. For the faithfulness of the wise servant is revealed when his master returns and he receives an incredible reward. While the hypocrisy of the wicked servant is also revealed when the master returns, and he receives the eternal fate of all hypocrites. The Bible teaches us that the believer will stand before his Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, where his life's work will be judged, and those works that do not pass the judgment will be burned up like wood, hay, and straw, while the works that survive the truck the judgment will come through the fire like gold and silver and precious stones. The Apostle Paul describes this judgment seat of Christ with these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And the unbeliever, the Bible teaches, will stand before the great white throne judgment, where he too will be judged by his works and also by whether his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And John saw a vision of this judgment. And he describes the conclusion of this time of judgment at the great white throne for unbelievers in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15 with these words. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All of this teaches us, friends, that, is, that a day is coming for every single one of us when our life on earth will be over and we will be ushered into eternity. And on that day, it will be impossible to go back and change anything in our lives. For good or for bad, all that we have been and all that we have done will be revealed on that day and nothing will be hidden from God. There will be no secrets. All will be exposed before his wisdom and his eyes. And then we will give an account of the kind of servant we have been, whether we've been faithful and wise or faithless and wicked. That's why the great missionary to Africa, C.T. Studd, said and summed up these realities with this profound couplet. Only one life will soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. And as Jesus continues to answer the disciples' questions of Matthew 24-3 regarding the timing of his return, he turns his instruction in these verses to preparing his disciples and us for eternity. As a result, it is imperative that we learn the lessons from the tale of two servants. And so would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 45 to 47, the wise servant. And this is what Jesus says again in those verses. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. In this parable, Jesus uses the imagery of the master of a household who has gone away but has entrusted his servants with the care and the feeding of his household until he returns. And you'll notice the word servant is used repeatedly in this parable. It literally translates from the Greek the word slave. And it is associated with the verb which means to bring someone into bondage. And in the context of the parable, this word emphasizes the reality that because you and I are born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, as the Bible teaches, our human will enslaves us and holds us in bondage to sin. And as unbelievers, we become servants of our sin. But the Bible also teaches that when we come to Christ, God makes us spiritually alive and he liberates us from the bondage of our sin and he makes us servants or slaves to him. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 6 and verse 22. And this is what Paul said. But now that you have been set free from sin 
and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end to eternal life. And so this word servant in the context of verses 45 to 47 is describing one who has been released from the bondage of sin and is serving a new master. He is serving God. He is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And the verbs that Paul uses in Romans 6.22 to describe this servant, free and enslave, emphasizes that the activity in the action is on God. That God releases us from our bondage to sin. And God enslaves us to Him in service and worship and love and devotion. And this background is important and necessary to understand verses 45 to 47 in this parable. And with this background, you'll notice in these verses that the particular responsibility of the servant is really incidental to the point that Jesus is making. The point that Jesus is making in these verses is that every believer becomes a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore is obligated to serve him and be devoted to him. And just like the servant in the parable, every believer has been given a divine stewardship and responsibility from God to serve him on this earth. And just like the servant in the parable, in our stewardship of all that God has given us, we are to be faithful and we are to be wise. Our lives, our breath, our energy, our talents, our treasures, our spiritual gifts, every good thing that God has placed in our lives are trusts from Him that we are to steward and use in our service to him. And you'll notice in this parable that this servant, he's busy. He's diligently fulfilling the task that his master has entrusted to him. And it reminds us that if we are Christians, we are not to sit quietly and idly by just counting the days, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. As long as there is breath in our lungs, we are to worship God. We are to serve God. We are to serve other people. We are to make a difference with our lives. And so Jesus teaches us here at the beginning of this parable that this faithful servant, this wise servant, carefully attends to his master's household. And notice, he's ready at any moment for his Lord to return. Now in verse 46, Jesus continues this parable and he continues to describe this faithful and wise servant. And he does it in verse 46 with a beatitude. And he says... Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Blessed, happy, joyful. It will be good, some translate it. It will be good for this servant when his master comes and finds him faithfully and wisely serving him. 
Jesus is teaching us that when the master returns, this faithful and wise servant will be blessed. He will be full of joy. He will be full of reward. Because when his master comes, he finds him faithfully doing what his master has entrusted him with. And the language that Jesus uses to describe this servant's work, the phrases doing or so doing in the ESV means to be going about doing good. And Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that when he comes, he can find us employed in no better and greater task than faithfully and wisely serving and worshiping him. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul learned from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he understood the point that Jesus was making in this parable. And I want you to listen to how he described his life and his ministry with the Corinthians. He uses the same language to describe his life and ministry with them that Jesus uses to describe this faithful and wise servant in this parable. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This, he says, is how one should regard us as servants, there's the word, of Christ and stewards, there's the principle, of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Can you hear that, brothers and sisters? That when you come to know Christ as your Savior, you are enlisted as a servant in His kingdom. And you're not only enlisted as a servant in His kingdom, you've been given a stewardship of the mysteries of God. And it is incumbent upon stewards that they be found faithful with what God has entrusted them with. And so this servant is faithful, you'll notice in the context of these verses, because he is expecting his master's return at any moment. And this servant is wise because he is living his life in light of the reality that his master could return at any moment. And this emphasis of keeping our hearts and our minds in a state of readiness and in a state of expectation while faithfully serving the Lord, it has been the position of believers throughout all of church history. And yet, it seems in recent generations of Christians, we have seemed to have traded this expectation and the lifestyle of faithfulness and holiness that are associated with it with an expectation of ease and the lifestyle of entertainment and a lack of discipline that is attached to it. And this is contrary to what generations of believers who have gone before us have believed and thought and lived in light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why J.C. Ryle said these powerful words. We may well doubt whether we are true believers in Jesus if we are not ready at any time to have our faith 
changed into sight. In other words, are you living in light of the imminent and expectant return of the Lord Jesus Christ? And is it ushering you and urging you to a life of faithfulness and a life of wisdom in light of that doctrine? Can't you just imagine? Can't you just imagine what it would be like on that day when Christ returns and rewards you for your faithfulness in serving him? Can you imagine as this servant found the blessedness and the joy of that moment? This, friends, is what Jesus is trying to show us in this parable. And you'll notice in verse 47, Jesus not only describes the blessedness of what that moment will be like, he describes the reward that the master will give to his faithful servant. And he says this, truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. Friends, the Bible teaches that believers who faithfully serve their Lord in this life will be rewarded in the life to come. We'll see it in Matthew chapter 25 in the parables that Jesus will teach in that chapter. And here's a glimpse of it in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 21. This is what Jesus says. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 23, Jesus says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy. Enter into the joy of your master. And as Jesus indicates in this parable, the reward for faithful service is greater service in the kingdom of God. The faithful and wise servant has been proven trustworthy in small things. And now the master will entrust him over all of his possessions, as Jesus says at the end of verse 47. So how are we to think about these verses? How are we to make application of this first half of the parable to our lives? Well, I have several for you. Here's the first one. And don't be confused by this parable. Jesus has been speaking about believers in verses 45 to 47. And it reminds us that salvation in Jesus Christ is a free gift of God's grace. And it is a present as well as a future reality. That if you are a believer in Christ this morning, you are saved right now. You're as sure as heaven as if you were already there. And it is also a future promise that one day you will be saved from the very presence of sin forever and ever in all of eternity. And because Jesus is writing to believers, he is not teaching us that salvation is of works. No, salvation is of grace. There is no amount of work that you can do to earn your salvation. But once you're saved, once you're saved, you're to work and you're to serve and you're to please your Savior. And in the life to come, you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness and service to him here on earth. Friends, you don't work for your salvation. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you turn 
from your sins and repentance and you receive the work that Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. That's what makes you saved. That's what makes you a Christian, not works. Don't be confused by the parable. Application number two. Notice how Jesus began this parable in verse 45. He began it with a question. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Notice the question. The question is who? Who among Jesus' listeners will respond faithfully and wisely to his instruction? Who among Matthew's readers will respond faithfully and wisely to this parable? For the faithful and wise person believes in Jesus and takes him at his word. And so, believer, I ask you this morning, will you heed Jesus' call to expectancy and attentiveness? Will you be found faithful and wise on the last day in your service to your Lord? Like the servant in the parable, will the return of the Lord Jesus Christ be a day of blessing and joy for you? Or will it be a day of regret because you didn't serve him? You know, toward the end of John Calvin's life, when his friends wanted him to work less for the sake of his declining health, this was his constant reply to them. Would you have my master find me idle? Who, who among us will heed the principle of this text? A faithful and wise servant. Application number three. In this parable, the master entrusted his servant with feeding his household. And I can't help but see the analogy in this parable to the responsibilities of the shepherds and the teachers of the church to feed the flock of God faithfully until Jesus returns. And in the days of the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel was told to cry out against the shepherds of his day because they had neglected God's flock. Instead of feeding God's people, they fed themselves. And in Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 4, this is what the prophet said. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, all shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep you eat the fat you clothe yourselves with the wool you slaughter the fat ones but you do not feed the sheep the weak you have not strengthened the sick you have not healed the injured you have not bound up the strayed you have not brought back the lost you have not sought and with the force and harshness you have ruled them and say so I say to my brother shepherds this morning are you faithfully feeding the flock of God or are you feeding yourselves? Are the weak strengthened because of your ministry? Are the sick healed? Are the injured bound up? Are the strange sheep brought back into the fold because of your faithfulness with the word to the flock of God? And friends, this just doesn't apply to the shepherds of the church. It applies 
to the, those who teach in the church. For James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. That those who handle the word of God, whether it's in the children's department or the youth department, or in corporate worship, or on Wednesday night Bible study, wherever you may be teaching, in your homes, in home group Bible studies, those who open the word of God to others will be judged with a greater strictness. And so I ask you this morning as your shepherd, those of you who work in the children's department, do you faithfully and wisely feed the children of this church? Or are you coasting? Are you phoning it in? Are you cutting corners? After all, they're little ones. They won't know the difference. I ask you who teach the students in our church. Are you faithful and wise in your teaching? Are you preparing? Are you praying? Are you submitting yourself to the authority of the word so that you would feed them and bind them up and encourage them and strengthen them. Those who are gathering for Bible studies in your homes and in the community, are you feeding? Are you submitting to the word? Or are you feeding yourselves and building your own platform? Who who is the faithful and wise servant who will feed God's household? Well, in this parable, we not only see the wise servant. In verses 48 to 51, we see the wicked servant. And look what Jesus says. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now look carefully what happens in the text at the beginning of verse 48. It's the word but that Jesus uses. And it introduces a contrast between the wicked servant of verses 48 to 51 and the faithful and wise servant of verses 45 to 47. And with the second half of this parable, Jesus is reminding us that not every servant is faithful and wise, that there are wicked servants. And the term wicked that he uses in this verse literally translates depraved, bad in nature, a vicious disposition. He is describing an unbeliever. Now notice what he does at the beginning of verse 48. He says that the wicked servant has the same ministry as the faithful and the wise servant. He too was expected to care for the master's household. He too was expected to feed the master's household at the proper time. And like the faithful and wise servant, the wicked servant has been given everything he needs to feed the master's household and to care for him. But this servant, you'll notice in the text, has a different attitude towards his master 
And he has a different attitude towards his responsibility to serve. So in verse 48, Jesus describes the servant's callousness. And he says, if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Now there's something very powerful that Jesus emphasizes here in verse 47. Notice the phrase in the ESV. He says to himself. It literally can translate in his heart. It is emphasizing the eternal. It is emphasizing a belief with a bad attitude. He says to himself, he's talking to himself. And I found one commentator particularly helpful with this phrase. And this is what he writes. Here, as elsewhere, this phrase embraces the reason, emotions, and the will. This wicked servant, his heart reasons that the master's arrival will be later than expected. His heart experiences emotional relief on that account. And then through an exercise of his will, arises in his heart all of the evil practices that Jesus will describe in verse 49. It was his reasoning. It was his thinking. It was his will. All of this came together and he said in himself, my master is delayed. His statement reflects the delusion that the return of Jesus will be greatly delayed. And therefore, he has plenty of time to get ready and he can live and do however he wants to. And did you know, friends, that the Bible describes that in the last days before Christ returns, there will be scoffers who will say the same thing as this wicked servant. Where is the promise of his coming? We've been waiting forever. This is how Peter described it in 2 Peter 3, verses 2 through 4. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's the same old thing every day. You all are fools. You keep talking about how Jesus is going to come back. He's never going to come back. We've been waiting forever. It's delayed. You're crazy. You're foolish for thinking that. And Peter says that's what it would be like in the last days before Jesus returns. But did you know that Peter goes on to instruct his audience that what seems like a delay to us and to the world is not a delay to God. It is God's perfect timing. For Peter says this, beginning in verse 5 of 2 Peter 3. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. What the world sees as a delay, God sees as His perfect timing. And, and you may find yourself just like this wicked servant, asking, why? 
Why is it taking so long for Christ to return? Why is it taking so long for final prophecy to be fulfilled? And I would say to you, the scripture answers that question, friends. Scripture teaches that evil has to rise to his complete and other course. And the book of Revelation describes this in Revelation chapter 14, verses 15 to 16. And in his vision, John saw an angel who came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And what John is describing is this reaping doesn't take place until evil runs its complete and ultimate course. And then Jesus will return and bring his wrath and judgment with him. And Christ hasn't returned yet, friends, because every person whose name has been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world must come to salvation then the end will come. And because this wicked servant had no conviction about the return of his master, notice what Jesus teaches us about him. He neglected his work. He thought there was plenty of time. And in verse 49, Jesus describes the wicked servant's cruelty by giving a vivid picture of what happens when belief in the Lord's return is abandoned. Take note of verse 49. This is where a rejection of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ will lead you. The wicked servant neglects the ministry that his master has given him. And then look at verse 49. He begins to beat his fellow servants, and then finally his life ends in eating and drinking with the drunkards. He throws off all restraints. And do you know what he's doing? If you look at the previous passage that we studied last week, he is living like the contemporaries of Noah did, eating, drinking, giving in marriage, thinking they had all the time in the world. This wicked servant was so engrossed in his sin and his own pursuits that he was completely unprepared for the catastrophe that was coming on his life in judgment. He said to himself with his heart and his mind and his will, my master's gone and there's no way he's coming back anytime soon. He's forgotten about me. He doesn't care what I do. He doesn't care how I live. Nobody's watching. It doesn't matter if I'm faithful or not. I can cut this corner. I can cut that corner. I can live and do however I want. No one is paying attention to me. It won't matter in the end. After all, who will stop me? And he was unprepared. And when the hope of the Lord's return crumbles in your life, all that remains is hypocrisy. A pseudo-Christianity, a pose, if you will, that will never withstand the pressures and the trials and the problems of life. It will lead. Listen to me, unbeliever. It will lead to your destruction. And while the wicked servant abandoned the imminent return of his master, Scripture teaches the opposite. 
Scripture teaches that we should live in expectancy and in the imminency of the return of Christ and that the doctrine of the return of Christ, listen, it should have a practical and profound effect on our life. I've taught you over and over that doctrine is for life. Doctrine is for living. Doctrine is not just for your head. It's for your heart. It's for your relationships. It's for your pursuits. It's for every part of your life. And when you study the second coming of Christ, the Bible teaches you what this doctrine should do in your life. Listen to some of these examples. Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Do you hear it? That's practical. Get rid of the works of darkness in your life and put on the armor of God and light. And let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, and not in drunkenness, and not in sexual immorality, and not in sensuality, and not in quarreling and jealousy. So, don't miss it. The doctrine of the second coming of Christ should push you to holiness, and all of these sins and vices that Paul just mentioned should find less and less of a place in your life as you're drawing closer and closer to the return of Christ. And you can't get any more practical than that. And it's not a question about liberty. It is a question about holiness and being ready for the return of Jesus. That's the point of the passage. And he ends it. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh to gratify yourself in your own desires. It's living not for yourself. It's living for Christ. It's living for the other world. The world that will only matter in the end. That's his point. And you can fill out every prophecy chart known to man and not have it affect you in your soul like Paul is teaching you in this text. And notice the beginning of it. We're closer to that day than we've ever been. Do you know that we just gathered a week ago and we're gathered right here in this place thinking about the second coming of Christ and do you know we're seven days closer? Seven days closer. You have a birthday this month. You're one year closer to that day. And it should grip you. It should affect you and how you live. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what does the doctrine of the second coming of Christ do? It reminds you that this is not your home. This isn't it. Your citizenship, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is in heaven. 777 Highway Heaven Boulevard. That's your address. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Oh, I could spend hours on this verse, friends. Hours on this verse. It's teaching you that when you gather with the people of God, you should give consideration to the people of God. And you should consider how you can stir up and fan into flames in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ a love and a passion and a deeper devotion for Christ. That you should consider that. That Listen, when you come to church, you shouldn't consider yourself. You should consider what's going on around you. And how you can stir it up in other people's lives. To love and to good works. To, in the context of the parable. To faithfulness and wisdom. And passion. And you shouldn't neglect to meet together. Like You should come to church. And now, listen, this is free this morning. We're living in a day when the pastor has to beg people to be faithful to come to church. And you're telling me? That that's going to prepare you for eternity? And it's just a thought, like, if you don't have a burden and a desire to gather with the people of God, what makes you think you have a true, genuine desire to be with them forever? And listen to the text. It, the second coming of Christ should push you to energize you to get together more. Because as the world gets more wicked and evil, you don't need less of God. You don't need less of the people of God. You don't need less of the Word of God. You don't need less of grace. You don't need less of singing to one another. You don't need less of praying for one another. You need more. And if you don't realize that, you don't realize how parched your soul really is this morning. James 5.8 You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Peter 4.7 The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This, friends, is what the doctrine of the second coming of Christ should do in your life. Now notice in verse 50. Jesus describes the wicked servant's carelessness saying, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know. He will come. He will come. It speaks of certainty. And though the wicked servant is given up on his master's return, the master will come on a day when the wicked servant doesn't expect, a day the wicked servant doesn't know, a day the wicked servant is not prepared. And when the master comes, he's not coming to bless this wicked servant. He is coming to judge this wicked servant and condemn him. Finally, in verse 51, Jesus describes the wicked servant's calamity, saying, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase, cut him in pieces, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's used in a strict sense in regard of the preparation of an animal sacrifice in Exodus 29, verse 17. For the Jews, they would carry the idea with it of death and destruction. And the language that Jesus is using here is that of a loss of reward and a loss of of opportunity. 
Now notice verse 51. Not only will the master cut the wicked servant in pieces, because he was only pretending to be a servant, the master will put the wicked servant, look at the text, with the rest of the hypocrites. He was a hypocrite, and so he'll be spending eternity with people who were just like him. You say, well, what's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is an actor in a play. They put on a mask, and they pretend to be someone or something that they're not. And in this parable, this wicked servant pretended to be a true servant of the master. And when the master returns, the master looks at the wicked servant and he says, you're a hypocrite, you go with the rest of the hypocrites. And then look at the text. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the language that the Bible uses over and over to describe a literal physical place called hell where every unbeliever will dwell for all eternity. And notice the text. It is a place. It is a real place where real people go in judgment and condemnation forever. It will be a place of inconsolable grief and unrelenting pain. And the whole second half of this parable is a picture of regret. It's a picture of pain. And it is a picture of loss. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount in a similar way that he ends Matthew 24. Describing the wise and the foolish. Describing a faithful servant and a faithless, wicked servant. He described it this way on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You workers of of lawlessness depart from me do you know what the point of the second half of the parable is it's easy to be delusional about how much time you have in your life and some have said that Satan's greatest tool is to get anyone to believe that they have more time and the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews that if you hear his word today, do not harden your heart, for today is the day of salvation. So how, how would we think about the second half of this parable? Well, let me just give you a couple brief applications and I'll close. The wicked servant reminds us that it is possible to be inside the church and not truly be a part of the church. Notice the parable again. This man, this wicked servant, was inside the household. He was called a servant. He had fellow servants. He had a master. He had a job to do. Yet clearly from the text, this man was an unbeliever. He could have been a faithful churchgoer. He could have had perfect attendance. He could have served in the nursery. He could have been involved in the children's department. 
He could have been involved in the youth ministry. He could have been a greeter that greeted you at the door. He could have been a deacon. He could have been an elder. He was in the church. But he wasn't really a part of the church. And in the end, the mask was taken off. He was cut in pieces, put with the hypocrites in eternity forever. Friend, does that describe you? Are you in the church? but not really a part of it. Don't harden your heart today. Take the mask off. Come to Christ today. Today is the day of your salvation. Application number two. The wicked servant also reminds us that even unbelievers will be held responsible for what they do with what God has given them in their lives. Whether you believe in God or not, he will hold you accountable. I told you at the beginning of the sermon in the introduction that when you stand before God as an unbeliever at the great white throne judgment, he will judge your works. He will judge what you've done in your life with what he's given you. And you will not make it through that judgment. He will hold you accountable. Don't be deceived by that. Application number three. The one with little desire for the Lord's return has little motivation to serve him. And the Apostle Paul teaches that if we look for Christ appearing, it will help us to be faithful and loving in our service. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, he writes, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Can't you hear his love and affection for God and his church? What is going to be my joy and my glory beyond seeing Christ, Paul says? It's going to be you, Thessalonians. It's going to be because of all of those years and all of that time that I've invested in you and what God has done in your life, and you're going to be my glory and my joy and my crown. But don't you see, friends? It's not about reward here. It's about there. It's about making the investments now to see the fruit there. That you, you would be my glory, my crown, my joy when you stand before Christ, mature in Him. That's what He's saying. 1 John 2.28 says, And now little children abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. A confidence for that day. Why? Because of the work that he's done in us this day. And see, when you look for Christ, and when you think about Christ, and when you expect Christ, it changes how you think, and how you live, and how you feel. Does it do that for you? Believer, are you looking for him? Are you expecting him? Do you love him? Do you long for him to come? Finally, it was Martin Luther who said, Christians should live as if Jesus had died this morning, 
risen this afternoon, and is coming this evening. And as Jonathan Edwards says in his resolution number seven, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid of to do if it were the last hour of my life. And do you know what both of them were saying? The second coming of Christ affects how I live. How about you? How would you live differently today if you knew Jesus was coming back tonight before the second football game? How would you live? Would it be different? How would you live in obedience? Would you be found walking in faithfulness and wisdom and obedience to him? Or would you be found, if he came back tonight, wandering in disobedience? Would you be found loving your spouse, serving your spouse, devoted to your spouse, passionate about your spouse? Or would you be found just merely existing with your spouse? Would you be found investing in your children, investing in your grandchildren, investing in your church, investing in your neighbors? Would you be found holding on to sin or holding on to holiness? If it were the last hour of your life, if it were the last day of your life, friends, would it affect how you live? Well, the faithful and wise servant believes in Jesus and takes him at his word. And the faithful and wise servant does good and does not do evil. And the faithful and wise servant lives this way because he believes his master is coming back to judge the living and the dead, and he will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. And the wicked servant, he believes he can do whatever he wants because he has plenty of time. I wonder today, if you'll learn the lessons from the tale of two servants. Let's pray. God, we voluntarily humble ourselves under the power and the authority of your word and under your holiness. And we pray in this moment that through the power of your spirit, you would take your word and you would bring application to our lives. And we pray today, God, for those who would be in this room or on live stream who don't know you, that they would turn to you even now in this prayer. And we pray today, God, for those who find themselves at a distance with you, with something in their lives, that you in this moment would move in their life and they would be resolved to get rid of that and come back to you. We pray today, God, for those who are weary and discouraged in their souls and in their service. You would take your word and energize them and encourage them and spur them on. You promise, God, that your word will never return void. And so we trust you today for fruit from your word and from our time together. And we ask your blessings on it in Jesus' name. Amen.